Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Matt Kaler. Hey, Calvary family. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the opportunity to share the word with you today. And so I'm excited to be able to teach out of Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I'd love to read our passage and then pray for us before getting into the study today. Verse 1, Philippians chapter 2 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. And Lord, we love to hear these words from you, Lord, to our lives. Challenging words, for sure. But Lord, words that express your desire and will and intent for your followers. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you conform us more into the image of Christ, to be able to embody these commands, these promises, and to live them out for your glory. So we pray your blessing on our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. It was Christmas Eve in 1910, and General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who was confined to his bed and near the end of his life, was not able to attend the Salvation Army's annual convention. Someone near to the general suggested that Booth send a telegram to be read at the opening of the convention to the many Salvation Army soldiers in attendance as an encouragement for their many hours of labor serving others throughout the holidays and the cold winter months. Booth agreed. Funds were limited and telegrams charged by the word at that time, so to ensure as much money as possible would still go to help the needy, General Booth decided to send a one-word message. He searched his mind and thought hard about what he could write that would encourage these believers in the mission that was before them. When the thousands of delegates met, the moderator announced that Booth could not be present due to his failing health. Gloom and pessimism swept across the convention floor until the moderator announced that Booth had sent a telegram to be read at the start of the first session. He opened the message and read just one word, others. Signed, General Booth. Now, Although I wasn't able to confirm the historical accuracy of this story, the lesson is nevertheless true. Others. Others. It's at the heart of the gospel. It was the theme of Jesus' life and ministry, and it is the calling for those of us that are following him today. To move from a life of self-centeredness to a life of others-centeredness. Now, we know the default position of the human heart is not others, is it? It's self. It's thinking of ourselves. It's putting our needs and our desires before others. You know, I was reminded of this when um, I had children. And uh, for those of you that are parents, you know uh, this lesson all too well. You know, my three-year-old, he didn't need Disney Plus or a Nick Jr. show to learn 
the word mine. <laughs> he had that within his own heart. And he exercised that at will when he could. And I think what was so frustrating about my kid's selfishness, or what is, is, is that it's a reflection of my own selfishness. Because this is something that we can all relate to. And I think it's rare that for me as a pastor or teacher, I can speak on something that I feel somewhat an expert in. And, and selfishness is one of those that, that I've got a lot to say about because I've got a lot of experience in. And so there's the default position of our heart. There's the, the fallen, broken, sinful nature of our own hearts that is making the idea of living a life for others difficult. But I think there's also a challenge in our modern day. I think our cultural kind of tide and current, it it easily sweeps us up and draws us in to the ideas that the universe is for me, that I'm at the center, that, that my needs, my desires, my wishes, my opinions, my feelings, these are the most important. And we have technology that reinforces this continually that puts things in front of us to make our lives more simple and easier because any kind of extra effort or discomfort on our parts, it's not worth it because, man, I'm supposed to be comfortable. And so we have things that, that make life easier for us, right? It's just too much time to type in on our phones a question to Google. It's just a lot better to just ask it into the air. Alexa, how many ounces in a cup? Alexa, who won the Warriors game last night? Alexa, what's the purpose of my life? No, not that. But the idea is that we are consistently seeing things and in, in ways and devices that reinforce this idea that, the li- that life is about me and for me. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we are called to a better way. We are called to adopt the mind of Christ that was one that we saw was constantly looking out for the needs of others, that was laying down his life for the sake of the other. I think the challenge for us as believers is to recognize that it's so easy for us to get swept up into this current of preoccupation with self. I feel the current. I feel the draw towards getting caught up in the orbit of me. But man, there's good news. There's good news in the gospel. There's good news as we examine the truth of Scripture and who we are in Christ, because in Christ we do find a better way, a better way of living, a better way of a selfless life. As Pastor Nate was sharing with us a couple weeks ago through 1 Peter chapter 5, he shared these verses, "'Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble.'" Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I I love that imagery of clothing ourselves with humility, that that we would adopt this position and this posture toward one another. And I believe this is the opportunity that's before us, church, to stand out in our culture and society, a culture and society that promotes self, for us to be a community that is there for each other. We need each other more than ever, don't we? And I believe in these verses in Philippians, we find a way to go against the the current of our culture, to embrace the life that that Christ has for us. 
for the sake of others and the glory of God. So let's jump into these verses. We're going to look at four things. As this passage breaks down, I I have one point for each verse we're going to look at. And the four points are this. The promises for the believer in verse 1. Verse 2, we'll look at the shared purpose of believers. Verse 3, we'll talk about the posture of believers. And then 4, we'll close by looking at the practice of believers. So let's look at verse 1. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So the first thing you have to notice here is that word so at the beginning of this chapter in this verse. That is a connecting word that that ties us into the previous verses that Paul had just shared. We know that in the Bible, when it was originally written, this letter, Paul did not include verse or chapter delineations. Those were put in later for um, our our own benefit to to make Bible study and things like we're doing a little bit easier. And yet sometimes the chapter breaks um, break in the middle of a thought. And so we want to look back and see what has Paul been telling the Philippian church? What are the encouragements he's been giving? Verses 27 through 30, Paul's imploring the believers in Philippi to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, that their lives would reflect Christ and that they would be strengthened to stand firm together in the face of opposition from the outside world. Encouragements that go right along with what we've been learning in in, uh, 1 Peter and our study through the grace of exile. And he says in verse 1, In light of this, so, therefore, if, there's another two-letter word. (laughs) I love this because what Paul's going to do next is he's going to employ kind of an if-then statement for this section. And we know how these if-then statements work, right? We employ these a lot as parents. If you clean your room, then you can play outside. If you draw on the walls one more time, you may not make it to third grade. You know, these are the kind of things that we say as parents. Um, If-then statements. So Paul says, if, if, There is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, he's asking the question, but he's not really asking for us to search and go, wait, wait, is there? He's saying, these things are true. It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? We know how these work too, you know, rhetorical questions. We we, we know it's like, is water wet? Are rocks hard? Is coffee better than tea? You know, these are things that have already been settled. We know these things to be true. So he says, if these things are true, another way to say it would be since these things are true, then do this. And that's what we're going to see in verses two through four. But let's unpack first the things that he says are true of believers. And as I said, these are the promises that are found in Christ for believers. What does he say? Encouragement in Christ. Have you found encouragement in Christ, friend? Have you received the consolation from Jesus, your Savior, your friend, your Lord? Have you been encouraged by his life, by his salvation, by his grace? Secondly, comfort from love. Oh, Man, how can we not understand the comfort of love as believers because it's God's love and his grace that have drawn us to himself. As we know that the comfort that comes from knowing his love is one that's been poured out into our hearts by his spirit, as Romans 5 would say. We know about what it means. Third, 
to, to participate. He, he talks about participation in the Spirit. This speaks to the fellowship and the community that we share as believers. What we're doing now, gathering together around his truth, around his word, around uh, him, and, and to say, he's the sinner. He's the reason why. He's the reason why we have participation, why we have fellowship with one another. And lastly, affection and sympathy, or as one person puts it, compassion. Have we felt the affection and sympathy from our Lord towards us? Pastor Nate shared last week on that incredible verse, cast your cares on him. And the reason why we can cast our cares on him is because he cares for us. How incredible to have a God, a creator that cares for us, that cares about our situations, that knows us intimately better than we know ourselves. You see, friends, these are the promises that we hold on to. Another way to say it is that these are the realities that are there for the life of the believer. These are the things that we don't have to question whether they're true. They are a given, and these are the promises that we hold on to. So can we answer this if question from Paul? Absolutely. For those of you that desire to know more of each of these things, just know they're available and they are in Christ. As 2 Corinthians 1.20 would say, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Cry out to him and ask that he would pour these things into your heart in greater measure, a greater realization of what you have in Christ. Now, as we understand the promises that are there, the, the basis for the commands that Paul is going to lead us into, because isn't that how it works, right? Before he tells us what to do, he tells us who we are. And friends, don't skip that step. Understand who you are in Christ so that you can do the things that he's called you to do. It's the power and it's the fuel and it's the motivation for the promises and the commands of God. Okay, so what is God's desire, if these are the promises of believers, what is God's shared purpose for believers? Look at verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So he, he mentions four things. For us to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. First, let's talk about what Paul isn't saying here. He isn't saying that we need to all be the same. <laughs> You're going, whew, that's great, because Pastor Matt, I, I don't want to be you. I understand, I get that. Even, it, it even, even means that we need to, uh, it doesn't mean that we need to all share the same in, opinions and convictions on non-essential beliefs. That would be uniformity, not unity. In fact, I think our differences can be an evidence of the gospel at work in our church body. Because there's a section of our culture that would tell us to disagree with someone means that you need to shut them out of your life. But this isn't the way of Jesus. God breaks down the dividing wall, but he doesn't then make us all the same. He unifies us around the things that are truest about us. So what does he mean? If that's, not, if that's what he doesn't mean, what does he mean about being of the same mind? What mind are we to share? Well, he tells us down in the same passage in verse 5 that we need to let this mind be in us that was also in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, when he says be of the same mind, he is speaking of the Christ-like mind, the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ that we're to share in, the mind that looks at people and problems through the eyes of Jesus. 
the mind that holds to the truth of the gospel and believes and obeys his word. As someone has said about this idea of being of the same mind, it's to be like-minded, which means to have the mind of Christ, to see things as he would see them, and to respond as he would respond. Isn't that beautiful? To have this mind together, to rally together, to be able to say this is what we want. We want to have the mind of Christ. Secondly, he says to have the same love. What love are we to share? You know, in our world, there are so many passions and so many pursuits and so many loves that we could go after. But the love that Paul is talking about is unifying around the love that he has poured into our lives. The love of God, to have the same love means to show that same love to others that the Lord has shown to us. A heart that's been filled with God's love, the love that the Apostle John says is a perfect love that casts out fear. This is the love that is not earned and secured by our efforts or the things that we do. Instead, it's given to us and received because of what Christ has done. Therefore, it can't be lost and taken away by our failures. You see, God's love doesn't waver. It's the most secure love in all of the world. And Paul is calling us to embrace and pursue that love together and show it to those around us. Lastly, he says, being of one accord and of one mind. And this is the idea that we are to be of the same goal as a church, as a community, as a body of believers. Another translation says being in one accord, which is uh, the scriptural basis for why I drive a Honda. But that's another thing. Paul is speaking about having a shared purpose, right? And a goal in our discipleship to Jesus. Another way to say this is keeping the main thing the main thing. To not let secondary things usurp our primary calling in the Christian life. To love him with all that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourself. What's the result of this type of community life? What's the result of this kind of shared purpose and goal? Unity. Supernatural unity. He said, you know, to complete my joy. I, I, I love what I'm seeing, Paul's saying, but it seems that there was something happened in the, in the Philippian church. There was some disagreements and disunity. He touches later on in Philippians 4 that maybe there was some um, inward division that was happening. And he says, hey, you guys are unified, but man, there's, there's more that can be there. And here's how you get there. Let's put aside these minor differences to unite together around the gospel, around Jesus and his kingdom. Another word for this is harmony. You know, harmony is the combination of two or more musical notes played together in order to create a pleasing sound. I love this, this idea of harmony. You know, as a worship leader, I've had the opportunity to lead worship in different contexts. And I remember one Sunday morning, I was leading worship and I was uh, leading the band and uh, we were, um, you know, supposed to start a certain song in a certain key. And I remembered that um, I was actually supposed to capo the song, which is a kind of instrument that helps a guitarist play um, similar chords in a different key. Anyway, I forgot to capo. And so what, is I, what I did is, as I started out the song is, is I played a chord that was anything but harmonious. It was disjointed. Uh, it sounded terrible. And so, you know, you have a decision in that moment. How, how long should I go with this? How long should I carry this through? And uh, it was so bad that you, I just had to stop the song and just, hey, I'm really sorry, everybody. And uh, 
I said, you know, the drummer, he's kind of new, and he's really been working on things. No, I didn't, I didn't blame it on the drummer. I should have blamed it on the bassist, but um, I, ended up, I ended up stopping saying, hey, I, I, that was the wrong key. Let's try that again, you know? And then when we played all together in the right key, it, 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 sounded, it sounded okay. But man, there's something about when two notes that are different but complementary are played together to produce a beautiful sound. You think barbershop quartet. You, you think of a symphony. You think of complementary voices that are coming together and singing the same song. And I, I think that's a great analogy for what we are called to be as the church. You see, the shared kind of purpose is not to all look the same, to be the same, to have the same personality, because, man, it's those differences that make our community rich and vibrant and real. But it's saying all of these things together, all of these different gifts, all of these different places and positions in the body work together because we're all singing the same song. But your note may be a little different than my note. And my note may be a little different than than your note. But as we play together the same song with the same words, guess what? A beautiful sound occurs. We're singing to the same person. We're singing the same song, and we're singing in harmony with one another. Not competing, but complimenting each other in order that the song we're singing and the one we're singing it for can be praised. (laughs) Now, that's what we're called to do as a church, to be of the same mind, the same love, the same heart, and the same goals and the same actions. Now, let's look at what we're to do as believers. So if these things are true, if our identity in Christ is is involved in accepting and receiving these promises, and then if our goals and our purposes are aligned to where we're pursuing the same things, how should that affect the way that we live? Well, Paul shows us in verse 3 the posture that we're to have as believers. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, when it comes to the posture that we're to have as believers, Paul tells us two things that shouldn't mark our lives and two things that should. Let's first look at the two things that shouldn't mark our lives. The first one he mentions there is selfish ambition. Notice he doesn't simply say to avoid ambition because ambition is a good thing. And in fact, a lack of ambition in life can lead to unhealth in many different areas, right? But he narrows it in on selfish ambition. This is what we do Uh, This is when what we do, excuse me, is not done out of love for God or others, but out of a desire to be noticed or promoted. This is when our desires and needs are placed above others in the pursuit of even helping people. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6, 1 in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus said, essentially, if what you're looking for is human recognition, then that will be all the reward you get for your good deeds. You know, this is an area that Christianity and the gospel goes beyond other religious systems, I believe, because Jesus is not just concerned with what we're doing with our lives, the actions, the exterior, but he's equally concerned with our motivations for why we're doing it. I think part of our growth and maturity in Christ is not just having him change our actions, the external things that we're doing, but also the motives and why we are doing what we do, getting into the heart. Because Jesus sees that everything flows out of the heart. To be able to do a good deed in secret without anyone noticing, to be able to serve in a capacity 
that isn't upfront or recognized by everyone. These things can be tough, but we need to see that selfish ambition, although completely encouraged by our culture, is antithetical to the life and the kingdom of God. Selfish ambition. We're called to put that aside. Secondly, he tells us to avoid conceit. Now, I know we know nothing of this one, but for the sake of it being in the text, we'll need to talk about it. So let's, let's talk about conceit. <laughs> a dictionary definition of conceit is an excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability, importance, or wit. Now, conceit is thinking too highly of ourselves and having an excessive self-interest and self-preoccupation. C.S. Lewis touches on this in his book, Mere Christianity, on his section in Christian Behavior in a chapter titled, The Great Sin. Dun-dun. He says, I quote, Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There's no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride. Now, this is convicting. The danger with pride is that it's so subtle. Too often we see it in others before we notice it in ourselves. And we notice it almost too late for it to have an effect, not just on us, but those around us. And that's what pride will do. It's really at the root and at the heart of every sin because it's placing us at the top and saying, I know what's best. In the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters below. News of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technology problem like radar malfunction or even thick fog. The cause was human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first. By the time they came to their senses, it was too late. You see, pride, it's not just a problem. It is really the problem in each of our hearts. It hides in crevices. Sometimes it masquerades as spirituality. And yet it's something that the Lord says we are to be rid of to humble ourselves before the Lord, to trust that exaltation, promotion, these different things, that that He will allow that to happen in His due time. But man, if pride is so consistently a part of our story, then then how do we we get out of it? How do we get rid of it? Well, Paul shares the antidote to pride in verse 3. He says, in humility. Ah. There's that word, (laughs) humility. Humility is the antidote to our pride. You see, it's through Jesus that we can be liberated from our pride and be freed to love and serve others. Humility gives us the opportunity to say, man, maybe my opinion, maybe my idea, maybe my desire isn't what's best. And to consider the other 
and to look to others. Humility is not for super Christians. It's, it's the normal Christian life. It's what happens when we see God for who he is and see ourselves in the proper place because pride is positioning me ultimately above God, saying, I know what's best. I know what's best for me. I know what's best for you. I know what's best for this world instead of looking to God as creator, judge, and Lord. Tim Keller gets at this when he writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Human beings have very little power over their lives. 95% of what sets the course of their lives is completely outside of their control. This includes the century and place they are born in, who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, physical stature, genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances that they find themselves in. In short, all we are and have is given to us by God. We are not infinite creators, but finite, dependent creatures. Friends, we need to see more clearly who we are in light of who God is and let His grace humble us in the process so that He could give us a posture and a heart that sees others as they are. Pastor John Tyson writes about how if we are to grow in humility and clothe ourselves in humility, it requires making a choice. He says this, Humility is a choice. It's an internal awareness, a posture of the heart that we're invited to join. We read in the scriptures the injunction to humble ourselves. Rather than a threat to our ego, this command is an invitation to find our lives by losing them, to experience freedom from slavery to ourselves. Humility is not humiliation. I love that. This idea that humility, it it frees us. It unhinges us from the bondage of pride and selfishness and self-preoccupation. He goes on to talk about how the desire to be humble is really rooted in love, and it needs to be rooted in love. He gives the example of parents who love their kids, and because of that love, they redirect their powers and their comforts for the sake of their kids. Spouses do the same thing, redirecting their resources, financial independence, and autonomy to see their spouses thrive. But most of all, God, who himself redirected his power for the rescue and flourishing of the world. As we read in the following verses, that Jesus lowered himself. He became a man of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man. These are all things that he did for others. He closes his section on humility by saying, Jesus used his power to write himself into the human story to do for us what we were incapable of doing for ourselves and then gifted his victory to us. Humility is conformity to the image of Jesus. I love that. Who embodied Paul's admonition to count others more significant than yourselves, as verse 3 says, better than Jesus? It was him to look to him To to become more humble is to to become more like Jesus, to grow in likeness with Jesus, to, to, to be spending time with Jesus so that we can know who he is and what he would do if he were us. I remember hearing a pastor share a story of a, a mom who was cooking pancakes for her two boys. They were five and three. Kevin, five, and Ryan, three, were fighting over who was going to get the first pancake, and she saw this as an opportunity to teach a lesson. She said, boys, if Jesus was here, he would probably say, I'm going to let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. So Kevin, the five-year-old, quick on his feet, said, great, Ryan, you be Jesus. (laughs) 
And so often, that's our perspective, right? We may even know what to do. We may even know the truth, but can't somebody else do that whole humility thing? Can't somebody else do the whole, like, others thing? This is not for elite Christians. This is not for the, the, the best. This is the experience that God has for each of us because humility and other-centeredness, it's not an optional part of the kingdom of God. It's at the heart of the gospel. And friends, in a world that is increasingly growing to be lovers of themselves, as the scriptures say, as followers of Christ, we're called to a better way of living, a more fulfilling way of living, finding ourselves by losing ourselves. Lastly, let's look at the practice of believers He says in verse four, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Remember hearing somebody talk about when you will know you met a humble person. He said, when you meet a humble person, you don't walk away going, man, that person is really humble. You walk away going, wow, that person was really interested in me. What can we practically do to grow in others-centeredness and selfless living? Paul tells us here, simply look out not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And, and really quick, I need to say, Paul's not saying to give attention, or excuse me, to not give attention to our interests or needs. And this needs to be said, especially in light of the difficulty of the past 20 months. This is not a proof text for ignoring your own emotional and mental health for the sake of others. In fact, can I just say, one of the best things some of you could do for others may be see a, see a counselor and, and get help. If you're struggling or or others are asking you to seek counsel for your life, consider others by reaching out to someone for help. So with that being said, Paul is assuming, as is the case for the majority of us, that we generally don't struggle when it comes to putting our needs and desires ahead of other people. Paul's calling us to the practice of placing others before ourselves. There are so many ways we can do this. It it really means having a heart and a willingness to help other people. Having a heart of humility that sees, sees even menial tasks done for another person as an opportunity to embody the life of Christ. Not trying to control what other people are doing. But kind of in the, the old days of, uh, as I hear about how neighborhoods used to kind of interact and respond, they, they went out of their way to help each other. Now we hear a knock on the door and we're like, everybody freeze. Who is it? What's going on? Someone's coming to our door? <laughs> but we're supposed to, to be this way for other believers. We're supposed to be looking out for one another because once again, friends, we need each other. We need the body of Christ. As Paul would say in Galatians, do good uh, to those who are outside. Uh, do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. And friends, can I just say that we shouldn't let the constraints of time and money keep us from finding practical ways to be a help to those around us. Busyness may be crowding out our ability to be helpful to each other. And so maybe it's, again, taking a step back and allowing the Spirit to analyze our schedules and our bank statements and just go, Lord, is there anything that you would call me to do for the sake of others? Maybe you say, well, I don't have any opportunities right now to help other people. Well, pray for opportunities. I don't know people. I don't know their need. Well, pray for those opportunities. Maybe start with your life group and just look around and just ask the Lord to pray or ask the Lord Lord to pray. Yeah. Um, Ask the Lord how you may be a blessing to someone sitting next to you. 
Again, it's not always materially. It's not always financial. It's not always physical. Maybe it's just really taking stock of the prayer requests that people lift up and praying for those people in a specific way, partnering with them. I'm going through um, this, this book by D.A. Carson called The Prayers of Paul and my D group with uh, my D group guys. And uh, it's a great book just examining the different places in Scripture where Paul prays. And one of the guys in my D group as we were meeting last week pointed out that so often in Paul's prayers for others, what he prays for, there, there's prayers where he prays for material, um, you know, uh, things or, or for safety from things and for encouragement, but so much of the time he's praying for their spiritual growth and maturity in the Lord. I just had to think through, okay, how often am I praying for others in this way that I'm praying for their spiritual growth, for, for, for the goodness of God to flow through their lives and out, for them to um, produce the fruit of the Spirit through their lives. I think that's just a great place for us to start, to be even intentional in the way that we pray for one another. Now, I think there are certainly applications to our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our families, but, but my heart in, in presenting this to us in our community here at 3001 Salinas Highway, Monterey, California, would be to practice these things together, that our default position would be to look to others, to look at the needs and say, hey, man, how can I be a part of that? whether single or married or divorced and widowed, that we'd come together for each other and discover the joy of finding our life when we lose it for the sake of Christ and others. Now, this is a tall order, I understand. I, I know for me, this is not something that I can pull off in my own strength. I blow it all the time. Again, like I said, I, I'm one of the more qualified individuals to talk about selfishness just because I know something about it. But I know that Christ in me is greater than the pull of the world to keep me preoccupied with myself. For some of us, we just need to step back and allow the Spirit to draw us closer in. You, you know the, the, the opposite of preoccupation? One of the words given in the dictionary for the opposite of preoccupation is awake. To come awake. To wake up. And realize that our preoccupation with self has caused us to enter into a slumber. To miss out on the opportunities to to both be a blessing and receive a blessing in service to others. And so my encouragement to us is let's wake up to the opportunities to live a life of other-centeredness. To seek his face and his kingdom. Knowing that the more I step outside of myself and live for others, the more that I discover the life that I was intended to live. As that classic poem says, others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I might live like thee. Let's pray. So Spirit, would you do this in our hearts, in our minds, Lord, in our hands, God, that we can move and, and kind of shift towards, Lord, Embracing that Christ mindset to live a life not of self, not of self-preoccupation, not of self-centeredness, but a life of others-centeredness. A life, Lord, that, that loves and looks for the opportunities to be a blessing and to receive the blessing of service in your kingdom. 
for your glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.